Well, as always, it's good to be with you all. Thankful always for the opportunity to open God's Word. When Mark said on uh, Sunday mornings that our Sunday evening series would be Christ formed in you, uh, I wasn't entirely sure what that meant. I came to realize it was just whatever he wanted it to be on, you know, the topic of Jesus. And uh, no, that's good. That's a good series. Uh, But immediately my mind went to one text. And I actually uh, don't have notes tonight. Typically I do because we're just looking at one verse. Uh, Galatians 4.19. Galatians 4.19. Providentially, this is kind of part two, actually, of Mark's sermon this morning. Uh, It's just the way things shook out. Perhaps you could title the sermon, Holiness Together, or something along those lines. But this has been a verse that has been in my mind for some months now, particularly because it's just not one I had particularly known well, and just in reading through Galatians a while back, it was a verse that stuck out. Galatians 4, verse 19. Galatians 4, verse 19 says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Read that again. My little children, for whom I am again The anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Perhaps a verse you're not entirely familiar with. What is Paul saying here? What is going on? What is he getting at? What does God, by implication, want from all of us to do with this verse? First, I think it is essential that we step back and get a contextual understanding of Galatians as a whole. What is going on in Galatians? Perhaps the most striking and unique feature of Galatians is Paul's passion is so clearly seen on the pages. Galatians is unique in that regard. Paul is worked up, okay? His tone is direct. I would even say he's agitated. This is something that he is inspirited about. There's something that he has to say. Perhaps the best way to describe Paul in this letter is that he is in a controlled, holy rage, okay? Why is he so passionate? What has got him so worked up? Well, at the core, Paul is worked up because the Galatians are turning to another gospel. They're turning to another gospel. That is, in fact, what he says. Look back at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. They have gone wrong on justification by faith alone. Look at Galatians 1, verse 6. Gone is the thanksgiving. We're, we're used to this in Paul's other letters. He gives greetings. And then he thanks the Lord for them, and he lists this prayer. That is not here in Galatians. Look at what he says, verse 6. I am astonished. That is what he goes straight into, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. There isn't. There is only one. They had been deceived. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And in in case that wasn't clear, look at what he says. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And notice too, who's he writing to? Who's the responsibility to reject this false teaching? Who's it on? It's not on the pastors. It's on the whole. What? The church. They have a responsibility to guard uh, the church from false teaching. Certainly, yes, the pastors, but the church is responsible for what they put up with. What had happened here is what we call the Galatian heresy. 
the Galatian heresy, false teachers of the Judaizers had snuck into the church and were teaching that in addition to believing in Christ, you must also perform works of the old covenant. Yes, you, you must believe in Christ, but you also must have something else. In particular, you must also be circumcised to be saved. And so for Paul and for all of us, I would hope that this strikes at the core of the gospel. This was a false gospel that damns, not the true gospel that saves. And he's astonished at the Galatian church for accepting this heresy, and that is why he pens Galatians in such a passionate polemic. Flip over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Notice the wordplay there, right? You who would accept circumcision, I'm not going to go into biology here, but circumcision is a cutting off, right? If you accept that, you are cut off from Christ. You see what he's doing there? You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And just in case his emotions weren't clear enough for you, if you haven't seen them on his sleeve, you want to see how he really feels about this false gospel and the false teachers, look down at verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul is in a heated, controlled, holy rage over the Galatian heresy. In fact, in most of his other, other letters, he has a uh, Emmanuel, someone who wrote the letter for him, that he was actually talking, and that person wrote it down. You come over to chapter 6, verse 11. Look what he says. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's possible that maybe he's just talking about that end there, where he wrote with his own hand. It's also very possible that he actually sat down and wrote all of Galatians because he was so worked up about this heresy going on. He is in a controlled, holy Rage. If you accept works of the law in addition to believing in Christ as necessary for justification, you have fallen from grace. You are believing another false gospel. So justification by faith is central to the book of Galatians. But I want to suggest tonight that justification by faith alone is tied to another crucial central concern for Paul in Galatians. Yes, that's there, but there's also another pressing concern. In fact, justification is so linked to this other concern that it's hard to separate the two. This other concern that he mentions, and what I want to focus on tonight, is the concern of sanctification. Sanctification, the progressive growth in holiness of God's people. And you can see this most clearly in chapters 3 and 4. Look back at Galatians 3 verse 1. Again, his passion is on clear display. Look at what he says, Galatians 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Just pause for a minute. Can you imagine Sunday morning, Mark gets up, and he just says, you foolish church, what is going on? Who has satanically bewitched you guys? I'd wake up if you said that. Like, if, if you're nodding off in the back, I would wake up. This is serious. Oh, those are strong words. Paul is not mincing words. Look, at, he goes on. It was before your eyes. 
that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? By hearing by faith, right? They received the Holy Spirit by hearing and responding in faith. That's justification. That's how they received the Holy Spirit, responding in faith. Verse 3. Notice the switch here. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You started here, but these false teachers are coming in and saying, yes, but you need something else. You need something else to go on in the Christian life to be perfected. Yes, the gospel that saves, that's good and true. You also need to add some things to it. And those things that you add will help you grow. He links justification and sanctification. Look over at chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He, he's talking about the, Judah, the Judaizer system, this false religion, this false understanding that you need the gospel and something else. This works-based salvation system. He calls it elementary principles of the world. Why are you putting the yoke of slavery back on your backs? We've been set free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And then finally... All these texts reveal his passionate concern, but particularly our verse tonight, Galatians 4, verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I don't even know what to do with myself anymore. What is going on there, church? I'm incredibly concerned about you and your growth in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. So in our time tonight, simply want to break down verse 19 and then consider some applications with you in the time we have left. First, let's break down the verse. My little children. That's how he starts off. Paul often talks about his ministry in familial terms. But it's actually rare for him to call a church or someone in particular my children or my child. Maybe you think of Timothy and Titus, right? My true child in the faith. But corporately, it's actually rare for Paul to do this. The only other time that I could find is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Or if you guys know the context there, he's very clearly writing to admonish the Corinthian church. Right? You guys know 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth was jacked up. They had some serious issues. And he's writing to admonish them, and he calls them my little children. The use is strikingly similar here. There were major theological issues in the church in Galatia. And he reminds them, my little children. I think he wants his audience to know the heart behind the words. There's nothing here of spite. There's no malice or ill will. These are his spiritual children. He loves them. He's not trying to get anything from them. Everything he's saying is for their good. This is maybe what we would call tough love, which we all need every now and then, right? 
In fact, this is kind of an aside, but I would just say if we're sensitive to the point where we can't handle any type of correction, any type of rebuke, any type of uh, gentle reminder to do this, if we can't handle that without defaulting to this person has something against me personally, it's maybe all the more the sign that we need tough love, actually, right? This is a loving spiritual father. He loves this person. He's trying to correct them on matters of spiritual life and death. There's nothing in it for him. There's no game. There's no financial gain for him. He loves these people. As he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you know this church that gave him so much trouble. What does he say? Our hearts are wide open to you. This is the heart of a loving spiritual father, or perhaps better stated in this verse, a loving spiritual mother. Look back at the verse. Notice what he says. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Now, I know it's 2023, but I am still not a woman. But having been married to one for almost five years now, and uh, that woman having uh, three children, uh, I understand the metaphor here. I understand the illustration, okay? I've been in that delivery room. Childbirth, newsflash, is painful. It is something that is difficult. It causes women to be in anguish, to be someone that they are not. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It does something to them. It is hard work. And it seems like always, you know, when a, a woman is in pain or something like that, they always compare it to childbirth, and it never measures up with childbirth. Childbirth is the extreme. Paul's describing something hard. He's describing something strenuous, something that requires immense effort and work to bring about the desired result, and that is the sanctification of the church. Notice how he goes on. He's not talking about their spiritual birth. He's not talking about their salvation. Notice, he doesn't say, I am in the anguish of childbirth until you are born, indicating their salvation. No. But rather, their struggle in sanctification is like that. It's like justification all over again because they've got this messed up. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you all. It's plural there. Each and every member of the church, he is concerned that Christ is formed in them. And how long will the anguishing birth pains last? Well, until Christ is formed in them, each and every one. This is going to last a long time. He's talking about progressive sanctification. He's saying, I'm in this laborious state until Christ dominates every single aspect of each and every single life in this church. It's true, we talk about justification, that believers are in Christ. We've been united to him by faith. His death is our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection, our resurrection. We are one with him by faith. These are all true of the believer because of the Holy Spirit. We've been united to him, as Romans 8 says. It's also true that we are seen as holy positionally because we're united to Christ and he is perfectly holy. The son's holiness is ours by faith. All that is true, positionally, if you are in Christ, here and now, every single believer. But, in the everyday, 
in the ordinary walk of the believer until we die and are brought to the Lord, we exist in this realm of progressive sanctification. This is where we live until Christ is formed in us. Day by day, our heart, mind, will are all being changed and are being renewed to be conformed to our status of positionally being holy in Christ. And this is what Paul is laboring for, the sanctification of the church. And as a church today, Crossway Baptist, right here in Bakersfield, 2,000 years later, this is where we are. We are laboring for sanctification. We are all together on this path of growing to look more and more like Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul, writing to a church, what does he say? This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what you are to do, church. So what do we do with a text like this? The hard part of this is certainly, this applies to pastors, right? I mean, certainly, as the Apostle Paul here, his heart is so clearly on display, it's easy to just go, hey, pastors, here's what you need to do. You need to have a heart for people. You need to do this. Whew, glad I don't need to worry about that. It's easy to do that, and that's true. We do need to apply this text pastorally. But seeing that the vast majority of us here tonight aren't pastors, I actually want to paint with a broader brushstroke. How can we as a church apply this passage? How can we together seek to grow in sanctification. I would just start here. All of us here at Crossway, each and every single member, we are called to life-on-life ministry with one another and towards one another. Listen to these commands from the New Testament. This is just a smattering. This is a shotgun. We are called to, quote, love one another. We're called to live in harmony with one another. We are called to instruct one another. We're called to care for one another. We are called to not bite and devour one another. We are called to be kind, to forgive, to bear with one another. And it goes on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, that's sanctification. That's pursuing sanctification together. You need to be responsible for your own sanctification, but also the sanctification of your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. We are to pursue holiness together. I'll just say this. Sanctification is not a DIY project. Before I get there, I had my notes mixed up. I knew that wasn't the next point. (laughs) We are all to pursue Christ-likeness. So how do we do that? I knew that was my second point. Three imperatives I think we can draw from this text. Certainly there's more. Number one, cultivate a heart for others. Cultivate a heart for others. No matter who you are, you're a pastor, you're a deacon, you're just regular Joe Schmo, okay, or Susie Schmo. Whatever you are, cultivate a heart for others. You're involved in a small group. You're in the cleaning ministry. You're in the nursery, whatever it is is, and especially when we come together on a Sunday morning, you cultivate a heart for others such that you desire Christ to be formed in them in the first place. I mean, maybe this is the hardest part of the text. I know I had to struggle with this. Maybe you just honestly can't sympathize with Paul and where he's coming from. Because I don't know about you guys, but to be blunt, sometimes I'm apathetic. That person's been like that for years. 
I don't see any sign of them changing. I don't see what my encouragement or what my prayer is even going to do. What's even the point? Can you imagine if Paul did that with the church in Corinth? They've got it so jacked up. What's even the point? Like, praise God, he didn't do that. What did it stem from? Yes, a heart for Christ and his glory, but also a heart for others such that they would also glorify Christ. So cultivate a heart for others. And not just the ones you get along with, the ones you know really well. Actually, probably where we need to work hardest is cultivating a heart for others that we don't naturally gravitate towards. So number one, cultivate a heart for others. Number two, know your ministry. Know your ministry. This is where the DIY illustration comes in. Uh, By the Lord's providence and kindness, my wife and I are now homeowners. And uh, yes, the joys that, that come with that. It has been a wonderful blessing, but we have a lot of DIY projects. You guys know what that means? Do it yourself projects, right? Uh, you know, assembling bunk beds, hanging pictures, all these things. Uh, if you give me the right tools, the right instructions, I can probably figure it out. I'm probably going to do it wrong, but then I'll eventually figure it out. Uh, but I enjoy doing it. I enjoy learning as I go, and it's, very, it's a very humbling uh, process. But like I said, I will tough it up, figure it out, do it wrong, and then get it right. I'll just say this. Sanctification is not a DIY project. It's not something you can do yourself. It's not something that if you just focus really, really hard, you'll eventually have Christ formed in you. It it doesn't work like that. Fundamentally, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to have a hard time. It's not going to be a joyful process. And it's not a project you can do by yourself because fundamentally, you aren't the one sanctifying yourself. Mark mentioned this this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says that Christ is is our sanctification. He is the one. Every single believer is sanctified by the person and work of Christ. Initially, we are positionally declared to be sanctified and progressively. He is the one who causes us to look more and more like Christ, like himself. So with yourself or with those you're ministering to, those you rub shoulders with at this church, know your ministry. Take the person to the one who sanctifies. Take them to Christ. Here's another proof that sanctification is not a DIY project. Think back to the Old Testament. Think of the book of Leviticus. You guys remember that refrain over and over in Leviticus? You shall be holy for I am holy. Over and over. Well, is that just something we're supposed to conjure up in and of our own selves? God is holy, therefore I must be holy. I just need to focus and work really hard to be holy? No. Leviticus 23, 32, in that same book that says that over and over, notice what it says. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He is the one who sanctifies us. He's always been the one who makes his people holy. So take people to the one who makes people holy. Well, what does that mean? It means you take them to the word. It means you read it together. It means you pray together. You join a healthy church and you participate in worship and you serve It's called the ordinary means of grace. This is how God works. And on this point of know your ministry, I would just add this. Make sure you're prescribing the right remedy. Make sure you're prescribing the right remedy. If we bring the law of God to bear heavily 
on a sincere believer who's struggling in their standing with the Lord, they're going to be crushed. But likewise, if we bring grace to a hard-hearted, resolute sinner, they're not going to be moved. A Lutheran pastor put it real helpfully. He said, God's word is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already terrified because of their sins or when the gospel is preached to those who are secure in their sins. Know your Bibles such that you can speak the right word at the right time. Is this person struggling? Do they need encouragement? Is this person not seeing something clearly and they need a gracious rebuke? Know your ministry. You see, the law of God teaches us what holiness of life looks like, yet it can never actually provide the power to live out that holiness. It shows us what to do, but it doesn't empower us to do it. What empowers us is grace. Grace of God as revealed in the gospel, as Romans 6 says. So if you want Christ to be formed in you and in others, know your ministry. Bring the gospel of God's grace to bear on the life of the believer. Help them to see that all they need for life and godliness is stored up in the person and the work of Christ, and then bring them to him. Number three, last point, be patient with others. Be patient with others. Rightly understanding and living out the relationship between justification and sanctification was an issue for the Galatian church. It's going to be an issue 2,000 years later now. There's confusion then, There's going to be confusion today, so be patient with others. We are all sheep in the flock of Christ, and we all have sinful sheep moments where we wander from the pen. Oftentimes, we don't want to be brought back when the good shepherd seeks us out. We're hesitant to be brought back. Sometimes, that sheep will even bite back. Let's not be surprised by sin, is just what I would say, right? Understand this is how all of us work. But if that person has been justified, they are being sanctified. There's never been a justified person who did not grow in sanctification. They're in that process, but be gentle with them. Be patient. Be gracious. Don't assume that they're going to be glorified tomorrow. (laughs) Hopefully not, right? Don't assume that they're just going to grow leaps and bounds overnight. Be gracious. Go into this work knowing just like childbirth, which seems like sometimes it's never going to end, right? Just goes on and on, and it's painful. I mean, oftentimes, meeting with someone for just months and months and months and just reading the Bible, and they still just don't get it. It takes work. Don't give up. Be patient. But yet, we gladly go into this work. We go into this work as God's church to pursue sanctification, holiness together, because it is worth it that Christ would be formed in us all. It's worth it because it is for the cause of Christ and his glory that he changes us all more and more as we look to his son together. So there's many more points we could draw, but I would just, and just in my time looking at this passage, cultivate a heart for others. We have to start there. Know your ministry. Know what you're responsible to be doing. And then finally, be patient with others. And we do all this trusting that Christ will be formed in us all. I think Mark's point from this morning is a fitting close. Don't divorce the person of Christ from his benefits. Right? We simply all need more of Christ. Just point people to him. 
Open the word. Gaze on who he is and what he has done for all of us. We need him on the forefront of our minds. We need to focus on him. 2 Corinthians says it's as we gaze on the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ together that we are all transformed from one degree of glory to another. So let's pursue sanctification together. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that understands rightly just how important sanctification is. Lord, that we would realize that it is a work that you uh, work in us and is often very difficult at times. It is strenuous. It is laborious. It is tiring. Lord, I pray that we would not lose heart. Lord, that we would personally pursue sanctification, that we would put sin to death where we need to and look to you, but also corporately, Lord, that as a church, we would understand our responsibilities towards one another, that we would have a heart for one another, that we would have concern that we would all grow in Christ likeness, that we would understand what our ministry is, our responsibility uh, towards one another as we corporately pursue this. Lord, I ask that we'd be patient with one another, that we would be gracious, that we would not assume the worst. Lord, that if we are justified sinners, Lord, we are all being sanctified. Lord, that we would assume the best of others um, when we are sinned against. Lord, that we would be a church characterized by grace uh, towards one another. Lord, we ask that you would take this word, you would apply it to our hearts. We ask this in your name, amen.